0: Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and The Washington Post Brand Studio.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
2: Washington Post, this is Colby.
1: Yeah. yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCruman from The Washington Post. The this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 15th. Today, a trip to the border with Beto O'Rourke, the Senate questions Trump's nominee for attorney general, and down the YouTube rabbit hole.
0: This is called Sunset Heights. Our house built in 1904.
2: So we started off at his house in Sunset Heights, this historic neighborhood near downtown El Paso.
1: Jenna Johnson is a political reporter at The Post. And she was in El Paso recently to talk with Beto O'Rourke, the former congressman, the loser of a 2018 Senate race against Ted Cruz, and now a potential presidential candidate. In the last few weeks, while Trump has been fighting with Democrats over a border wall, O'Rourke has made immigration one of his big talking points. Pancho Villa lived on the street over
2: here. Yeah, O'Rourke was pointing out that. historic spots along the way.
0: See that sign it says, welcome immigrants. Oh, yeah
2: tenement houses where migrants used to live when they first came to the United States. No
3: analogy is perfect, but this is this is kind of the Ellis Island of the Americas for, for
0: immigrants who
2: came. And then we went over an international bridge. It was windy up on the bridge. So this made for an interesting dynamic for a conversation because the two of us are trying to talk about these very deep, important issues while also trying not to run into polls or into other people. Another distraction that kept coming up as we were doing this interview is that people kept stopping O'Rourke on the street and urging him to run for president. Can
1: get a picture Sure can, yeah. What's your name? Amanda. Amanda, I'm not I know who you are.
2: There were groups of women who wanted to take a photo with him. Jenna went to do this roving interview
1: with O'Rourke because she wanted to get a sense of his mindset as everyone waits for him to decide if he's running for president. But if that were to happen, she also wanted to know whether he would rely on the same skills he channeled in his Senate campaign, using his charisma and energy to connect with people across the country.
2: I would talk to people who went to his rallies and it just made them feel good. You know, they might not really know anything about where he stood or what he might do as a senator, but he was able to soothe them. He was able to talk to them in a way that just made them feel better about where the country was headed. And it felt like that ability to sort of emotionally resonate with people
1: translated into his ability to fundraise, that he ended up being really successful from a money
2: standpoint. Very much so. He raised $80 million, which broke all sorts of records and also brought him kind of some criticism. You have all of this money, and you're still kind of a long shot. You're running in Texas. Maybe you should share that money with other candidates. And so he actually, you know, was determined to not leave anything on the field in 2018, and he spent almost every penny of that $80 million. And then he lost. And then he lost by about three points.
1: So now he is an ex-congressman. He doesn't have a job now, right? Correct. Why are people still paying attention to him?
2: Well, because he's still talking to them. And he's someone that a lot of people still believe in and, and still look to. And he's still kind of part of the conversation. President Trump gave a national address last week where he talked about the border. Uh, and soon after, Beto O'Rourke gave a walking tour of his neighborhood on Facebook. And 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 he's just trying to convey that it's not a scary place. He's posted videos of migrant families who had just been released from detention centers and were trying to figure out where to go next. And they were gathered in a park eating free pizza and free chicken and and just showing Americans look, these are families not very different than yours. Look, Look how not scary they are. Tens of thousands of people watched. And one thing that kind of surprised me is that he really doesn't have a lot of answers when it comes to actual policy, what the United States should specifically be doing differently when it comes to the border, when it comes to immigration. Uh, the shutdown. Right. How does it end? I, I don't know. I don't
3: know. I don't know. Uh...
1: What was O'Rourke's record on immigration when he was in Congress.
2: Well, it was never an issue that he was super active on. When you look at who was in the back rooms kind of trying to hammer out a deal and, and things like that, it wasn't necessarily him.
1: But if he doesn't have a strong record on being a behind-the-scenes dealmaker on immigration or having a really strong sense of policy when it comes to immigration, like, why is he talking about it so much? And do you think voters will By that. Will they notice the fact that he doesn't have any hard solutions on what to actually do?
2: Who knows? And this all depends on if he decides to run or not, if his opponents decide to focus on that or not, and if voters care or not. You know, he is talking about the border right now because it's the number one issue right now. Donald Trump is talking about it. The federal government is mostly shut down because of it. So, I mean, this is An issue of our moment, and he's seizing on it. I've talked to people who are close to him, and they really closely tie his rise to Donald Trump's rise, that the reason he has kind of built this national following and built this voice is because he's chosen to kind of put himself forward as an opposite of Trump. So from having this lengthy conversation with
1: O'Rourke, What was your impression of what he would be like as a presidential candidate if he does decide to run?
2: Well, he obviously has some work to do before that. And he's made clear in other interviews and in conversations with those close to him that he's still weighing this. He's still trying to figure out if he wants to run or not. We can look back to the Senate race last year for A pretty clear example of what he's like as a candidate. He's someone who has really distanced himself from the Democratic Party. He doesn't like labels of any sort, including that very basic label of a D. He likes to do everything himself. He's very controlling of his message. And you know who he sounds like? Donald Trump. There are a lot of similarities between them while being completely different people. When I was on the road with him last August, I was struck again and again by the similarities. O'Rourke never hired any pollsters. He didn't believe in hiring expensive consultants or things like that. He kind of had this belief that he had a vision and that he wasn't going to have it tainted by anyone else, that he was going to be guided by what he was hearing out on the road from people. And also, very much like Donald Trump, he focuses very much on emotions. But I think...
0: The president has demonstrated that...
2: Instead of just relying on facts and statistics and and things like that. And
0: what is far more powerful is the emotional connection that we have to issues and the stories
3: that transcend the numbers. And
2: and and to be clear, he he still rattles through all of those facts and statistics. He's very careful in the ways that he words them because he doesn't want to be fact-checked on them. He wants to be trusted on them. But I even talked with him about this, and he said that... We are living in an age where the numbers aren't enough. People need something more than that. They need stories that can transcend the numbers. It seems like a lot
1: of Democratic potential presidential candidates are going to have to weigh this question of do they try to take the Trump approach of talking about emotions and feelings and sort of impressions about the state of America and the state that America needs to be, or should they be more rooted in, like, hard policy stances and actual executable plans of action, which is very much the opposite of how Donald Trump campaigns. And for O'Rourke, it seems that he's really leaning far into the former route of, like, I'm going to be the guy who talks about feelings and impressions rather than the guy who talks about policy.
2: So I asked him about this as we were on the international bridge, kind of crossing back over into El Paso. And he said that a major problem in politics these days is that politicians are too locked in on their plans, their solutions, their ideas, and that they're not open to hearing other things. And so often when I asked him a very specific question, his response would be, we should have a national discussion about that. We should have a debate about that. We should have a conversation about that. You know, I asked him about the war in Syria. And if he agreed with Donald Trump uh, pulling troops out, he said that's something that we need to have a conversation about.
0: What, What I agree with is having
1: a debate, a discussion, a national conversation
0: about why we're there, why we fight, why we're willing to sacrifice the lives of American service members. Why we're willing to take- I
2: asked him about the Green New Deal, this plan that Democrats have been talking about that would heavily invest in green jobs. And he lit up at the idea. He called it bold. He was excited about it. But he also said that it's a starting point. For a conversation, of course. So that's how he's doing it right now. He's not a candidate. He's not decided if he's going to run for president or not. If he were to become a candidate, would voters still be okay with that? Would they still be okay with getting behind a candidate? who just wants to think about things and talk about things.
1: And isn't putting out any kind of hard ideas on what to actually do.
2: Exactly. Even when it comes to the border and immigration and and issues that he's been so close to for his whole life. You know, will he hit a point that voters are going to want to hear more from him? Thank you so much, Jenna. Oh, thank you for having me on.
0: Good morning, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Feinstein, and and members of the committee. It's a privilege to come before you today, and I'm honored that President Trump has nominated me for the position of Attorney General.
1: When William Barr walked into the Capitol on Tuesday for his Senate confirmation hearings to become the next Attorney General, he knew that he was going to be grilled on one thing more than anything else.
2: Will you commit to making any
0: report Mueller produces at the conclusion of his investigation available to Congress and to the public? So the big concern was, what is he going to do with the Mueller investigation?
1: Matt Zapatoski covers the Department of Justice for The Post. And he spent the day watching Barr's confirmation hearing. And as he was doing that, he was keeping a close eye on how Trump's nominee would defend against accusations that he might try to use the job of attorney general to sabotage Robert Mueller's investigation. Because there is evidence to suggest that he disagrees with some parts of Mueller's strategy.
0: Barr, before he was nominated for this position, was just a... a- white-collar defense attorney in private practice, and he's a former attorney general. He liked commenting on issues of great importance to the Justice Department, so he would comment on occasion on Mueller's investigation. He told me one time, I think in 2017, that he wished there was more balance on the team, meaning a lot of the team members had contributed to Democrats, and he was sort of worried there weren't any big Republican contributors, or one guy who contributed to Republicans. but And he also sort of maybe more importantly wrote this memo to the Justice Department like a well thought out, like a long, a, a long memo. A long, I think it was eighteen pages long. A memo that questioned Mueller's authority to explore the president for obstruction of justice. That has really got Democrats riled.
1: So going into the hearing today, Barr knows that he's going to be asked about this. Yes. And what is his response to concerns about the memo specifically, but the greater idea that he's going to get in the way of the Mueller investigation.
0: Well, his response is to say, I'm not. And he actually tries to get ahead of today's hearing. Yesterday the Justice Department released his what they called his written testimony, the statement he was going to read when he went to testify today. And he promised... I am going to maintain the Justice Department's independence. I am going to let the Mueller probe finish. As long as Bill Barr is in charge, Mueller will be allowed to complete his work. And he even stressed that he's friends with Mueller.
1: That's what I found really interesting because there are a lot of times where he he doesn't call him Mueller or Mr. Mueller. He calls him Bob. Bob.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, they served together in the Justice Department when Bill Barr was the attorney general, the head of the Justice Department. Bob Mueller ran the criminal division. He was kind of one of these other Senate-confirmed people. Bill Barr says they've known each other for years. At, At his testimony today, frankly, he was describing a conversation he was having with President Trump about Bob Mueller. And he said look, me and Bob Mueller are friends. We're going to be friends long after this is over. And he says the president asks him, what do you think about Bob Mueller's integrity? And he says, I think Bob Mueller is a straight shooter. I mean, like, it's very weird because even Jim Comey, who is a big backer of Mueller, when there were questions raised about whether Comey was conflicted because he was friends with Mueller, Comey made a point to say, Look, I respect the heck out of the guy, but we're not friends. You know, we're not social friends. Barr is going farther than that and saying, this guy's my friend, and he's going to be my friend when this is all over. He even made, made a point that their families, I guess, are friends, too.
1: And and basically giving the impression that, like, why would I get in the way of this guy's investigation when I clearly respect him very much and trust that he's doing a good job?
0: Right, exactly. That's the point he's trying to make. Now, Democrats are still skeptical, and you read this 18-page memo, and friends or not. He really was worried that Mueller was on shaky legal ground and he even testified today. He doesn't back down from that now. He testified today that what he was reading in the public about Mueller's theory of obstruction, he worried about dangerous precedents that would set across the Justice Department or across other agencies. So he's not backing down from that sentiment that so worries Democrats, but he's saying, look, that was based on public information. I need to get in there and, and actually figure out what theories Mueller is pursuing. And also, I'm going to let him finish his work. I will promise you that.
1: It seemed like... Democrats coming into the hearing today knew that Barr was going to say writ large that he's not going to interfere with the Mueller investigation, but they were trying to get more specific promises out of him. What were those kind of promises
0: so one big thing i think a lot of them were driving at was will you release Mueller's findings there was a lot of questions about that and he had in his sort of advanced testimony said my goal is to be as transparent as possible well that's you know not specific at all you know the cavalier's goal is to win every game they're not going to do it he was pressed like are you going to release the findings to us? Do you promise to release the Mueller report? He offered some minor little concessions on that point, but he didn't give them the big McGilla, which is like, I promise when that report comes to me, it will come to you. It was always caveated, like consistent with law. And what Democrats want is him to say, I'm not going to do anything with Mueller. Essentially, it's going to come right from Mueller to you guys, and I'm going to have nothing to do with that. He wouldn't go that far, but he did say he would let Mueller finish his work and he would be transparent as possible about the results.
1: One other big issue that came up in the hearing was the question of whether, and if so, how seriously, Barr considered becoming a part of Trump's outside legal team.
0: It had been reported, we had reported, I think Yahoo had reported, that he had had some discussions about being Trump's lawyer. But it's always nebulous, like how serious was that? When did those occur? With whom did they occur? And the reason this is so significant is because Barr is going to go supervise the Mueller investigation, and it might be grounds for him to recuse himself. If he, if he had gotten like far along in the process of being Trump's lawyer, if he sort of went over and got a huge window into Trump's defense, now he could presumably use that at the Justice Department. If he had gotten some kind of money to represent Trump, like this could be a real issue, and it was a great mystery. We knew his view on the Mueller probe, but taking the step of like actually engaging with possibly representing Trump, that could be a more serious thing that would prompt his recusal, which is what some Democrats want. They want him to recuse from the Mueller probe.
1: Barr said that the conversations he had about possibly representing Trump were very casual and that he never really considered it seriously. But it's questionable whether Democrats really buy that.
0: You know, look, I think in texting with some people in the Justice Department as this hearing was going on, a lot of people are saying, wow, he's doing well. He's, you know, he's saying the things that the Democrats would want to hear. But is anything really going to satisfy them? I don't think so. You know, I don't think they're going to walk away saying, you know what? He, he just convinced me I think he really is going to leave Mueller alone and they're going to point to all these pieces deep in Barr's past and more recent in Barr's past like the memo and say, look, we appreciate that he said these things, but there's this record that we just can't get past. I have a tough time believing that Democrats are just going to sort of up and walk away like, oh, he allayed all our concerns.
1: And yet at the same time, even though Democrats might not be completely satisfied with Barr's answers, he did say a lot of unequivocal things about, you know, he said, quote, it would be unimaginable to me that Bob would do anything that would be considered good cause for me to put a stop to the Mueller investigation. I mean, he was really clear about he has no plans to interrupt what's going on, that he wants Robert Mueller to be able to take the investigation to its conclusion. You have to wonder, like, President Trump sitting there watching this, what he thinks about Barr basically saying like i have no I have no plans to like end the witch hunt,
0: yeah, I mean, at one point, he said something to the effect of this isn't an exact quote, but i don't i don 't believe that Bob Mueller would engage in a witch hunt. He talked a lot just of himself, Barr talking about himself about how. I'm so old, you know, I'm not going to be bullied around. I don't even want this job. I mean, he's casting himself as this old, like, well, Trump's not going to push me around. I'm way too, uh, you know, i am been around the block. He, he's not going to push me around. I wonder what Trump is thinking, like, oh, gosh, you know, this isn't like a sort of Southern gentleman like Jeff Sessions, who uh, he kind of did bully and Sessions never responded. This guy, Bill Barr, seems like a little feistier. ¶¶ And on the Mueller probe, he was pretty unequivocal in, I'm gonna let him do his job. But I think Democrats fear there's a lot of wiggle room underneath that, right? So what if you have a genuine legal disagreement, like about his theory of obstruction? Does that count as interference? Barr would probably say, no, I'm doing my job as the attorney general. He's sort of off on an island, I'm bringing him back in. But Democrats would say, well, you're getting in the way of his investigation.
1: Later in the afternoon, in further questioning, Barr told senators that while it would be his goal to release as much as possible about the special counsel's findings, that might not include Mueller's detailed report on who should and should not be charged with crimes. Barr's confirmation hearing will continue on Wednesday. And before we go, one more thing. When Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in the news last week because of her health, tech reporter Drew Harwell wanted to know how RBG was faring on YouTube. Just one search
3: of RBG, you can get to just one of these conspiracy theory videos. And then the rabbit hole deepens.
1: He said that the first thing that came up about her was a documentary. But then there was a lot of other stuff, too. Stuff that just was not true.
3: And I was honestly amazed by how ridiculous a lot of the search results were. Most of them were conspiracy theories or just viral hoaxes or just crap that's not, like, related to the news.
1: Videos about RBG from conspiracy theorists were right at the top.
3: One of them is, Rothschilds are very afraid, and so is RBG. That's like a reference to the hoax about powerful Jewish family controlling the media. The next one is, beginning of the end, QAnon, RBG, missing in court, national emergencies, spying on senators, MKUltra mind control.
1: Drew and another reporter, Tony Rahm, ended up writing a story about this, and then YouTube fixed the search results. But that doesn't address the wider problem and its effects. Drew says seeing these bogus videos displayed prominently creates an ecosystem for conspiracy theories.
3: YouTube is the biggest video site in the world. It's the second most trafficked website in the world. And when they search for RBG, they're expecting to get results that are kind of relevant to the topic. They're not expecting conspiracy theories. So when people see that in the first page, they're saying, YouTube has to know something that I don't. Maybe they're getting to some part of the message that I'm not hearing elsewhere.
1: But the message people are getting is inaccurate, wrong. And YouTube just can't keep up with the flood of information that pours into their site every day.
3: Algorithms don't understand language like we do. It doesn't understand the context of calling someone a crisis actor being bad, or sharing misinformation being not healthy for you know the spread of ideas. It's just not smart enough to know every sign that a human moderator would. YouTube has hired thousands of moderators to look at videos and hopefully stick to the rules better, but there's just no possible way for humans to do all the work. 450 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube every minute. And so we're sort of trapped in this gray area where humans can't do all the work and the algorithms aren't smart enough to do the work either. And so there's this sort of shadow realm where all these videos are doing really well and there's no one really fighting back.
1: Drew says that the best thing to do online is to be vigilant.
3: Be smart about the stuff we're putting into our brains because as much as YouTube wants to correct for these sorts of things. these sorts of disinformation problems are going to be happening all the time. It's not just going to be a this week thing, it's going to be a 2020 election thing. Information is how we share ideas online and it's also something that's really easily corrupted to making us think or feel or do the wrong thing.
1: That's it for today's show. You can listen to past episodes of our podcast and learn a lot more about the stories that we feature over at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and The Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're gonna learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.